intro Pagliacci there it is the famous opera and very 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 important to today's episode and uh, I just wanted to start it out kicking it off with that jam how'd that one grab you huh wow what a voice that was Mario Lanza singing Pagliacci the famous opera and I thought that was uh very poignant to kick off today, episode 27. How are you, Nantucket? Thanks for clicking on Inside the Whale. I am Doug Cody. I am your host of Nantucket's first podcast. I hope that this episode finds you well. Hope you guys are enjoying February. Families are probably packing up, taking off, because all the kids are off this week for school. Hopefully you're getting someplace warm. Things are slow, but good. Slow and steady wins the race. I've been staying busy. I've been going to the West more. Thank God I joined. Uh, worth every penny. Uh, love taking esteem, and it really kind of, you know, especially when things are slow out here. I really do love this time of year. It's a really, it's a great chance to start reading, to start doing all those things that you don't get to do in the summertime. Uh, one of them is meditation. Tried to start meditating. I firmly believe that meditation is truly a valuable asset to everyone's day-to-day lifestyle. And if everyone could just practice five minutes of meditation a day, even three minutes, this world would be a different place. And I know that may come off as pretentious and maybe even like a little like, dude, not everyone is cut out for meditation. But that's just the point because we're all inundated with thoughts, our own personal thoughts, that bog us down, our baggage that we have in life. And meditation is free, and it's a chance to give yourself a break from those thoughts. I need it. We all need it. I remember a few years ago, I tried to get my parents to sit down and (laughs) to meditate. And they did, and they actually enjoyed it, but uh, I don't think they practice it. And I, I don't practice it regularly. But I'm trying to. I'm trying to make a change. That's my February. Anyway, folks, hopefully you're doing well. Thanks for clicking on Inside the Whale. we got a great episode for you today. Opera singer Greta Feeney and recently appointed executive director of the Nantucket Community Music Center is my guest. And uh, it was a really great conversation sitting down with a professional opera singer. The work the commitment, and the insular world of opera, really, is exciting to learn about. I was fascinated in the amount of training that goes into that. And uh, Greta was nice enough to sit down, had a really interesting conversation, and uh, you're going to hear it. I think it's a great great episode that really gives some insight into uh, just how intense uh, the training to become a professional opera singer. Juilliard trained. I mean, I just think that's incredible. Was asked to uh, to come and audition for 
to be in one of the most prestigious opera schools in the country. It's a great episode, and uh, you know she's got this new position, and she's certainly an asset uh, on Nantucket, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So uh, that being said, let's get to the episode with uh, Greta Feeney, opera singer and now executive director of the Nantucket Community Music Center. Let's go to the episode, guys. It's time to go Inside the Whale. Guys, now you might whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. He rises! that we've just gotten from the corner table. And then we can't have any more. Oh, no. Greta just <laughs> informed me that uh, coffee is a natural antidepressant. It is a natural antidepressant. I mean, it does. The, the, the study that I was quoting from didn't use the word antidepressant. That would probably be um, Fairboten, right? But they said that the instances of depression are lowered for people... Specifically, this study was for about women who consume more than four cups a day. And more than four cups a day somehow balanced out the depression? 20% um, less likely. Yes, that's significant. I'm not a doctor, but I would guess that because it's a stimulant, the uh, effects are probably similar similar to that of like a... a uh, what's the a one? Stimulant. A stimulant. Well, now I was going to say, what's the... Um, Adderall. Adderall is yeah. this. Well, you know, um, I mean, who can be depressed on Adderall? No, I mean, I've, caffeine, I've only taken Adderall once. Caffeine but. is a central nervous system stimulant, for sure. But I think it's it's a heck of a lot safer than Adderall. Um, and there's also other stuff in it. There's antioxidants in coffee, too. Um, there there were other studies. I, I mean, I could pull this up on my phone if we wanted to you know, get sciencey about it. But the other studies discussed chronological degenerative degenerative diseases like parkinson's parkinson's even um and alzheimer's so coffee is good for your brain i think the only like you were saying dehydration is probably the thing you have to be be careful about but um and if it makes you jittery that's not fun but i've developed a tolerance you know over the years for for it i used to have to watch it a little more i think when i was in my 20s and i um you know, I was more concerned with hydration levels back then because of the alcohol consumption. <laughs> I was going to say the obsessive nature of listen. Everyone's of been in their twenties. We don't have to hide anything here. Um, I drink more now than I did when I was in my twenties. I was I was very abstemious. I'm going to use that word because it's been on my mind lately. When I was in my twenties, I was really good because I was training so hard. You were training, which yeah. I can't wait to talk to you about. Yeah. So that's that's why you're here today, Greta but Feeney. Honestly, Doctor Greta Feeney. Oh my gosh. I I, I just <laughs> I think it's in, every time I see that you're you're a doctor of voice. I am a doctor of musical arts. Okay, there it is. Yeah. Um, well, first off, let's go back. Greta Feeney, <laughs> the Feeney name on Nantucket is, uh, is one of those names that you hear about. How many Feenies are there? Oh my gosh, there's a bunch of us. I, I mean, you know, my sister has migrated 
my father migrated to Concord, my sister's in Santa Santa Barbara now. And I just learned that there is a Feeney who is here who is not related to me, who um, people thought maybe was my husband, which I thought was kind of funny. And I don't even know who he is. I just know there's another Feeney who's not island. part of my immediate clan. So i got to meet this guy. So, But you grew up here. I moved here from New Jersey when I was 15. So, so a you lot, didn't grow up. No, and like that's and that's you're funny. You're a wash ashore. I am a wash ashore. Absolutely, I, I I grew up in primarily in New Jersey. What town? Initially in Ocean Grove, uh, historic beachfront, quirky little one square mile uh, town, um, and then subsequently we moved inward to Brick Township, which was much more kind of what you think of when Is you this think Central of New Jersey? Jersey. Yeah, it was not pretty. It's <laughs> so funny. I did not have you pegged for a Jersey oh, girl. Oh man. Well, I I didn't really identify wholeheartedly with my community at after a certain point. I mean, I I I'm, Even that young? <laughs> you remember well, being no, 12 I'm years always, old being like, I don't identify with these people. <laughs> I'm adaptive, right? And a survivor for sure. So, and I I think that, you know, you can you can create yourself in such a way that you're you're going to be socially successful because that's a survival instinct. So, you know, I did the big hair. I, I had, you know, tight acid wash jeans and went to clubs and smoked Newports and got into all kinds of trouble. Like New York clubs? No, we mostly, we mostly hung out on the Jersey Shore, you know. But I made a very swift transition into being a hippie after being a, um, a club head. And I think that that correlated with me finding theater right around when I was around 14. You know, just a real... You started doing theater in high school? Uh, I started doing community theater with my father uh, at a pretty high level, you know, kind of tagging along with him. So your dad's an actor? Yeah, my dad's and an actor. And your mom? My mom is a singer, songwriter, innkeeper, mother extraordinaire. Are they still together? Sadly, no, but we're all very good friends. Um, my my father uh, remarried, as did my, my father remarried an actor he met on Nantucket, actually, and they have a beautiful family um, that's growing still. Go dad. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's not what you think. They're adopting another another kid, but there's there's going to be four now. That's admirable. Yeah, it's it's huge. It, they're they're very generous. Um, yeah, that sounds. People. And he was acting in New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, he was an actor, a prodigiously talented actor in high school, and um, went to Stella Adler. And but you know, he he became a dad pretty young, and it's hard to jumpstart a career in the arts when you've got a couple of babies. So yeah. he was a tradesman most of his life. He, he did a lot of different things with his hands. You know, he's a very physical person. So construction and so in your immediate family it was you and your sister. There's four of us. Four. Uh, I have an older brother, Chris, who lives here with his kids and his wife, Daisy. Um, I have a younger brother, Aiden, who is a sustainable farmer, or he studied sustainable agriculture and now is a farmer in Modena in the Hudson Valley. Wow. Very cool guy. That's a pretty diverse family range. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. You know? The, the age range is pretty wild, too. My parents, you know, two kids in their early 20s and then two more in their mid-30s and then divorced and then my dad had two more and adopted or is in the process adopted one and is in the process of adopting another so there'll be eight of us all together wow that's a big (laughs) irish catholic clan yeah (laughs) 
So and uh, so you start theater, and that's obviously where your your singing uh, came to. I wanted to talk to you today. I about always the... sang, you know, and I, I had this pretty crystalline little voice when I was a kid, but I wasn't very confident with it. And I I did, you know community children's theater when I was really young but I wasn't competitive I wasn't a good auditioner and I just never could you know get the lead roles but um but I I loved to sing I just I don't know I just had you know I was more comfortable with the acting piece at first I felt like more confident about that and then the music piece sort of fell into place in high school when I started singing in chorus. I really loved singing in chorus. I just loved the sensation of, of being a part of a harmonic yeah. experience. It it's just, contagious. Oh my gosh. It, I, I, it transport me, you know, outside of my body, outside of myself, which I think is what I always have wanted. You know, that sort of sense of not being self-involved because it's, artists often are and you're hardwired that way. It's not a character flaw. It's physiological. It depends who you talk to. Well, <laughs> I, I think to be to be unaware of it, it can then traverse into the space of it being a character flaw. So if you keep evolving, you start to realize that the, you know, you turn the lens outward and you become much more interesting as an artist. But for a while, you're like hyper consumed with your development, like whatever that is, whatever the talent is. I guess is. whatever the medium is, you know, yeah. painting or Singing yeah. is something that, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I always, uh, you know, music is tangible. Picking up a guitarist, you can sing anywhere. You know, all these yes. other forms require uh, the involvement of others, especially like when you get into theater, but you can sing anywhere. So it's a very uh, immediate uh, reward. It is immediate and visceral. I mean, it's sometimes a little bit torturous when people know that you sing and you're expected to do it all the time um, because yeah, it, that can be a little bit anxiety producing because there are times when you just don't feel like you have anything to give, but you're, you know, somehow I, I mean, I always, I, I tend to, if someone asks me to, I always sing. It's very rare that I won't do it, but it, but it's not always um, easy. Right. When you're not prepared, you know, or of you, or you well, your your style of singing, and I think we should, we will get into that. Yeah, you know, opera singing is very different than asking someone to you know belt out a quick you know Johnny Cash song. Yeah, well, but I think also sometimes it's just about not wanting everyone staring at you. It's like you're you know, and and people get a kick out of it. You know, it's like if you're in public and it's someone's birthday and they want you to belt out this, you know. <laughs> shocking high all and you know consuming noise that everyone and and people will just stop and the room will get really quiet and then there you are and and that's just that sense of like the private space and the you know um that said I'm pretty much an adrenaline junkie so like I never I can't say I've ever regretted singing a performance in public, whether it was planned or spontaneous. So, where did you start singing? When I want to, how did it get lead up to becoming? I want to go to school for opera. Like, what's the trajectory? When right around the same age, so you know, early adolescence, I think something started to develop, you know, physiologically and psychologically, where it became apparent that uh, a musical talent that I don't think that I fully tapped into as a kid studying piano started to 
it was more feasible for me to have um, serious potential as a singer because I didn't have any chops in any other instrument. I had I was a very good pianist when I was really little, but I, I there was no continuity and it wasn't like it just didn't happen. So, but the, by the time I was fourteen and singing in chorus and you know my voice was standing out. And I was starting to realize I needed music. I when need, you say standing out, you, you... My voice was sticking out. Yeah, it was just clearer and louder. And, and the, did the teachers notice that yeah. as well? And, and the other students you know, were annoyed, and it wasn't fun for them. But I had no interest in blending either. I was happy that it was sticking out. And I sang really loud in chorus. That's probably some of the gusto you get to become an opera singer, because you, you have to have that sort of attitude, don't you? You have to enjoy the sound of your own voice. My gosh, it's like if you don't, who will? <laughs> you know? Right. But I mean that that said, that has been a discursive journey because there have been many periods where I did not enjoy the sound of my own voice, but I had to keep singing and figure out what was going on with that. Do you remember when you first heard an opera singer where you were like, what what that being thinking? Oh, that's what I want to do. do you, is there a moment that you remember that's like that? Oh, jeez. Um, or is it just uh, an organic kind of thing? You just I don't remember one particular moment where an operatic voice affected me so deeply that I could say that one moment was pivotal. It was more a gradual immersion into classical music in general and the realization that the nature of my singing instrument was well-suited to a certain repertoire and that the acting piece folded really nicely into that. But I, because I really loved, um, I loved Debussy's piano music like more than almost anything else. And then um, that was really the first thing that, that swept me away. Like I, I was like, this is, I, this is critical for my well being. I need to be surrounded by these kinds of sounds forever in order to be happy. And then, you know, how do I fit my particular set of talents into this world, this domain of classical music was like, that was the challenge because I didn't really know. And, and then I think I discovered the oratorio, you know, the classical sacred music first, mostly because of... What is that? I'm not for, what is the oratorio? Um, so oratorio is a form of musical storytelling. It's based on the liturgy, you know, the stories in the Old Testament and New Testament. But basically, it's, you know, it's a form of musical pageantry. They're great big pieces um, for various orchestral arrangements and even symphonic arrangements. It's really the subject matter that distinguishes it from opera or um, any other kind of large-scale vocal music. Gotcha. So it's it's sacred. It doesn't necessarily have to even be the Bible, but um, in some ways, if you hear oratorio and you're not sure what you're listening to, you'll think it's opera because it has the same scale and epoch and the same kinds of voices. But um, I actually think that the, the subject matter was interesting to me. It wasn't that I was so keen on understanding the Latin or anything, but I loved the sound of the music. And I think, you know, when composers were focusing on spiritual matters, the, sometimes the, the, the music 
does sound to my ear now, which is much more trained, really different than it does in opera. So well, like you have a discerning, you know, years of education to, to decipher the two. It's also just exposure to, to the music. And when you, when you're, you know, when you're a high school kid with like a, a cassette tape of excerpts from great oratorios and you warp it because you can't stop listening to it, you start to change your brain. And so it's like the, the, you know, the, so you were the girl in high school that wasn't, you're going home listening to total geek. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just, I'm painting the oh picture gosh, here. So yeah. you're, you're sitting at home in your room. All the other girls are listening to Madonna. I was listening to, and Mo- you're listening to oratorios. Mozart oratorios and weeping generally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must've been fun at the prom, Greta. No, 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 no. I was fun. Oh dear. That's our conference call. What was that? Are we in a conference call? Um, there's a name for that thing. We are. I should. I should have mentioned to our listeners that we're recording this at the uh, NCMC, the Nantucket Community Music Center, where we are both gainfully employed. Where uh, <laughs> I am. I'm. I'm a new uh, guitar instructor, and uh, Greta Fini has just been uh, taking the role of director, executive, director. executive director, yeah. which is exciting. And uh, if I had an applause button here on the podcast, I would press it for you. But congratulations. Thank That's you. an exciting. Uh, Exciting new position, and uh, you definitely have the chops to f- to do it. Oh you my know? gosh, I'm so excited! I really am. It's just and we will let's talk yeah. about that. I want yeah. I want to continue with the opera because I, yeah. I I really want to get uh, to the point where you're looking at Juilliard. Oh my gosh, yeah. And that was you, such a good day. And and you get in to Juilliard School of Music. Well, there's definitely a story there because I I never I mean I I applied, but I never. I never actually, I had to apply, but I was invited to go. And that, now looking back, it's just crazy. Because I didn't, um, I didn't think I was that competitive. I, and I did my undergraduate degree at Manus, which is, you know, a great school. It's smaller. Where is that? It's on 85th in Columbus, or it was. It's, okay, it's, so you did an undergrad in New York. Correct. And, um, you know, the three big music schools in New York are... Juilliard, the Manhattan School of Music, and Manus. And Manus probably ranks three, but in some ways it has a, a stronger theory and composition program. And frequently you have faculty that teaches at all three. So it's like when you're talking about that level of, of competitiveness, it's, um, but hands down, it's hardest again to Juilliard. It's, it's just, it's virtually impossible. And I never thought that I, I that I could get in. So undergrad, were you musical theater undergrad? No, I, I studied opera and I worked diligently. I felt like I was coming in sort of underprepared, and I was. I I, um, I had certain things going on for me, but not a lot of exposure. You know, coming um, coming from here, it, it was more just I hadn't had a lot of opportunities to interact with people on the same track where I could feel certain that I was good enough as I, I stood out here there was no competition for me when you say here you in on, on Nantucket but okay. but like being you know you're sort of a big so you were you were singing out here oh yeah all the time I, I mean I was a total chorus geek theater geek I was constantly in the music room you know, not crying, but like, <laughs> so like, sad. No, I was. Such a I, just, I have to say, like, I have to qual- qualify that comment. Those were tears of joy, Doug. Mm. 
Oh, I'm sure. The, whatever no, you need to the drink your sound, coffee. The sound of the music was just so beautiful to me. Seriously. No, that I get it. It would completely change the, like my, my, my body chemistry. Like I, I would hear certain certain unfoldings and harmony and just think, oh my God, what just happened? And it was just so beautiful that, you know, I was, I'm just hardwired that way. Sound affects me like that. And this particular vocabulary seemed to resonate very deeply. And in my old age now, I've come to believe that that's because there's such a thing as a soul. And probably I have an old one because I recognized this like I didn't know what was going on. Like I didn't have that background, but I started to hear, you know, this music, and I was like, "Why is this? Why do I have this connection?" That was in college, or even no, earlier. It, it, in you know, like my earlier, my childhood and adolescence. Like, why do I have this connection? To Were this your parents? Music? Did they listen to a lot of classical? No. Or were they like no hippies? They loved classical music because both of their my mother's brother and my father's brother were classical bassists. So wow, there the was the lineage that. of musicians in your family. Yeah, is- and Eric Wendelkin, of course, lives here. That's my uncle. So he's an outstanding musician. And then John Feeney plays in the Orchestra of St. Luke's and has for, you know, almost 50 years now. So how did you start coming to Nantucket? <laughs> Through your parents doing theater out here? Um, I actually came out here to do theater one summer. My godmother had lived here since she was 18, so we'd long loved and visited the island whenever we could and and certainly it was a magical place for me but I never thought I would get to live here and then um, my parents marriage was on the rocks and I was really not feeling like my evolution was happening in New Jersey and I was you know pretty strong-willed and I just told my parents I was moving here (laughs) and so I did and what year was that? It was two years before we actually wound up settling out here. So, um, like 80, gosh, like probably like 88. And I did a play with the theater workshop where I played an opera singer. I I was in Amadeus and I played the role of Caterina Cavalieri, Salieri's student of opera. And they, we had these rehearsals and they were going to pipe in canned music of a singer. And I was like, well, I can, I can sing. Why don't I just sing? And so they would let me sing and and then they said you should you should actually be an opera singer not just play one <laughs> on stage and yeah. that was sort of like so that was that was, was the start of it really yeah, yeah pretty much I had taken some lessons in New Jersey but that was I got to it's so funny I've been thinking about it I got to embody that thing that I was going to become way before I had done any of the work and then kind of fell in love with this idea and the pageantry of it, certainly, and the music. Yeah, I just, one of the things that fascinates me, and it's one of the reasons I had you on, is because that kind of, uh, opera singers, dancers, it's such a tiny, tiny percentage of people, less than 1% of the people get to make a living as an actual yeah. opera singer or a dancer, and even acting, and musicians too. It's just one of those things, it's just a, it's a very, very small percentage of people that actually, and well, and this is something I want to talk about. What is making it an opera? I mean, that's a really good question. I think it, it varies from individual to individual. In some ways, I didn't set the bar high enough for myself. I think now, um, looking back at it, yeah, because I remember getting into it. I was thinking, you know, knowing, knowing how difficult it was. Um, I thought. I am. I would be so thrilled just to be able to make my living as a musician. 
I didn't think I want to be a star or, you know, I, I have these specific goals, like I have to sing at La Scala or I have to work with this conductor or I have this whole list of repertoire I need to do. Um, and things happened very quickly for me and I found that I had reached that goal, you know, by the time I was like 23. And um, Is that, were you in Juilliard at that point? Yes. Well, I got, I started at Juilliard when I was 24. So I had finished at Manus and I was supporting myself, you know, doing gigs and also with a church job that paid my rent. Um, that was a tough church job, more, more than, you know, there were, there were different levels and this had a big concert were you, season. Were you singing at churches? I, yeah, I was a soprano soloist at the Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims in Brooklyn Heights for like six years. So oh, wow. my, so I had to, you know, show up every Sunday. Yeah. Which really puts a damper on your social life because you're on the subway at six 30, you know, yeah. on Sunday morning. Um, but, and that's again, the level of commitment, but, but yeah, so you have to learn a lot of music every week and show up and be able to lead a volunteer chorus of people who don't necessarily read. And, and, um, it was, it's hard work. It really and is. And that's why you're going to school. Yes. That's why you're going to school. And I was also teaching to support myself and doing gigs. Yeah, and I wanted to give people listening an idea of just the day-to-day workout of an opera singer. You know, like, so what would the typical day be like? Well, I was a hyper-practicer, which is ill-advised, but I would usually get to school before any other singers because I liked, if I was singing repertoire that I considered inappropriate or that I just felt in meaning like I was doing a gig where... (laughs) <laughs> once I sang the queen of the night on Nantucket, for example, right. which is that I, to, you know, if, if that had gotten out that I was doing the queen of the night at Manus, it would have been very hard for me to explain my logic, you know, to people. So because this is a very, the, it's catty just group impossible of- to sing. And it was, it's literally just like one of those weeder pieces where it's like, if you can do it, you know, you'll get, like snatched up by some German opera house and that's all you'll sing for eight years and then you'll probably retire because it's so freakishly high. But um, so like if I had weird repertoire or stuff that I felt I didn't want anyone to hear, I would come to school and do that early, like between seven and nine o'clock. And then I would practice and then I would go to class all day. Um, You know, and we, we did, I had to study piano. I had to study French, German, Italian and English, both the language and the diction music theory starting with um you know very basic and all the way through to 20th century theory and uh harmony and ear training and then music history art history five years of art history is part of the yep absolutely and actually is incredibly valuable because when you start to make the linkages between the way is that a word linkages it is now. <laughs> <laughs> I have a doctoral degree, so I'm allowed to make up I know, words, well, actually. You're, you're, the doc, you're the doctor here. No, I think it is a word, actually. That's all right. I'm a big fan Sausages, of making up words. Linkages. Linkages. <laughs> the, you heard it right here, the doctor. Um, she makes up words. That's I, how good she is. And, and, and then, then there would be more practicing. So I would and say... singing. Yeah. Like, so, you know, warming up scales and arpeggios and just trying to get all of those notes lined up. And by that, I mean consistent in quality, volume, resonance, color, you know, what it is to be able to sing a scale, you know, a five note scale 
slowly well on one vowel. Where Which the- is unbelievable. I wish we, I'd love to be able to give people listening an idea because it's just so insane how the voice becomes literally the instrument of just like, you know. A five that, note scale? Well, no, I could say uh, hit a B flat and you could go to a B flat in your voice immediately. Well, I don't have perfect pitch, but I could try. No, but you're probably pretty close. Hmm. You want to try it? I think that's probably a B flat. All right, wait, hold on. She's gonna pull out her phone. It's, I'm like it gave me goosebumps. It's <laughs> unbelievable. I and I like, have not been the amount of time and training it takes Thank to God. get there. I'm such a hack at what I do musically. So when I hear that, I absolutely geek out and appreciate that. Okay, so there's a B flat. That's insane. Was it was that close? I don't know. Hold so on. she's pulling up the app on her phone, and we're gonna see if that was in fact. I mean, it was it close. Because now explain per- perfect pitch. Some people are born with it. Some people can develop it. Oh, so is it actually a B natural? So it's a half tone off. That's just because I'm a little nervous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just you got even close to it, which is my my point of that whole I thing. I actually was knew that it wasn't a B flat because my vibrato had slowed down a little bit, which it does at a B natural. Because a B natural goes into a totally different place in your throat, like. A B flat is high, but you don't have to pull it back behind your upper molars and spread it to sing it properly and have control. So once you get, you know, for, and this is just generally true, it's a different place entirely in your voice, a B natural and a high C versus a B B flat. Right. And I think that my whole point of that, regardless (laughs) of all that, was that all exists within your throat it's that's the training that how many years of training conservatively know? i mean you know training where all where the main focus of my of my time was establishing technique um 15 years yeah 15 years and it, it's just amazing that this instrument gets created in your your throat and your Every day you're working that out, right? You're just doing the exercises constantly to the point where you can just say, hey, hit a B flat and you can get almost there. I mean, that was just off the cuff. I you overshot it. it. <laughs> but that's um, right, yeah, well, yeah. And I, I mean, that's there's a sense of first of all, I think ironically, when I finally figured out how to sing, the industry was no longer that interested in me and I was less interested frankly, in singing. So let's, I think we should talk about that because that's, I think that's what happens. A lot of people with conservatories get burned out, correct? Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say I got burned out in school. I mean, I went out into the world and started singing before I'd finished my master's degree at Juilliard because I had this sort of, um, quantum leap in my skill level. And, um, who is your mentor? You usually have, you usually have a mentor my teacher herb. was Marlena Malice. And I'm looking at the, I'm looking to see, I pulled up on, I pulled up the uh, top greatest singers, opera singers. Well, she, I was going to see if she was there. She wouldn't, she wouldn't, her, her big career was as a teacher. She stopped singing um, when she was very young. And there was a lot of, you know, mystery surrounding that. I mean, she's, she's so famous as a teacher that it's, hard to argue that that was de- her destiny it, you know was she a soprano 
She started out as a mezzo-soprano and then made a transition to dramatic soprano when she was in her 20s and uh, one of the young artists in the Lindemann program at the Metropolitan Opera, which is just about as badass as it gets. See, now in the opera world, that's a big deal. Did you hear so-and-so went, right? When you, when she you was make in those that program in and her teachers decided that she was not a, a mezzo, she was a dramatic soprano. And the story goes... Frankly, I was never comfortable asking her about this. Um, the story goes that that wrecked her voice, that that transition from mezzo-soprano to dramatic soprano wrecked her voice. And killed her career. Yeah, and she, but I mean, and I don't know what she would say. I mean, we create these stories in the industry because they satisfy us, but I don't know what she would say. And frankly, well, we have her on the phone right now. Oh, stop it. <laughs> She's on the phone right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're going to call her. No, that's crazy. I mean, I, oh. I do think it's interesting, though, and it gives a little uh, context of the opera world, which is what I really wanted to get into yeah. and how cutthroat it is and competitive. And, and you were, beginning to say what happened to you when you got out yeah um well I feel pretty confident that it's a balanced assessment to say that I was singing at a very high level before my technique was solid enough for that to be healthy for me and I I don't blame necessarily the people around me who should have known that it's sort of like it's so exciting when you start getting work at that level that how could it happen if it's not right but um you know you need a team around you to understand to understand the different levels of development that have to be in place to support like there's there's the physical um side of things then there's the emotional side of things the spiritual side of things, which no one talks about, um, and the psychological side of things. So all of those structures need to be galvanized, like a like your bones need to be hard enough to be considered mature, right? Your bones are soft until you're a certain age, and they continue to harden, and so on and so forth. So like these these processes that you go through to develop into an artist, I mean. Look, maybe there are some people for they had never have to think like this, but I did right. because it was I, I think way too much. I have a discursive mind. I ask a lot of questions. Um, faith did not and confidence did not come easily to me. I had to prove everything to myself every step of the way. Like, is this really happening? Am I supposed to be here? Am I this good? So you didn't, when you got into Juilliard and you were, did you not believe that you deserve to be there? We that no, we, that was kind of a weird time where. I was very blithe, not blithe, but I was sort of blissed out about things. Like I, I knew that I belonged there because they invited me to go there. <laughs> like I, the head of the opera department heard me sing in a master class at Manus. My last year at Manus, I sang in a master class for Renata Scotto, and I was approached after, and they said you should come to Juilliard, and I said okay, <laughs> but I'm like I was like I don't want to go back to school. I'm ready to sing. And they're like, well, why don't you come to JOC, which is the opera center, which really is a professional situation. They pay, uh, yeah. <laughs> they pay you. So you're not in school. You're not enrolled. Well, I mean, you're enrolled, but it's not a tuition program. Um, you actually get paid to go. Yeah, a small stipend. So that was the draw. And how many people are in that program? They might admit 
three or four every couple of years. I don't know. They they, they plan people? it strategically according to what operas they want to do. And it really oh, and it with the Met. Yeah, or? so it's a program meant to graduate you into your professional um, life and give you exposure. So you know all the productions are have very high production value, and the press is there, and all the agents are there, and blah blah blah. Did you perform at the Met? No, I, I sang in their competition. So yes, but I never was actually a cast, cast in an opera in there. Yeah. And, but you auditioned. I sang in their competition. Um, and I won first place in the New York district and then was booted out in the semifinals because I cacked a high note in my, in my, is that the high note of your career? Is that the one that That was, that was, that was one of those moments where my soul rebelled. Like I, I, I stood up there Mm. completely ravishingly prepared and, and, and really at the top of my game and just did not hit it out of the park. And I had Did you to, know it after? Were you like, oh. I I absolutely knew walking on stage that some there was a, an internal rebellion happening. Like I was not grounded in my body. And I was like, I mean and I I did it. I mean, I sang two extremely difficult long arias, but I knew that it was a blooper the entire time. <laughs> It was devastating. Is it that cutthroat that they would know that people listening would pick up and be like, "Oh, she missed that. She was a little sharp on that note. I don't think she's." Oh, ready it goes for this. way beyond that. There's very I little. I want people to have yeah, a sense of ve- how cutthroat there, it By gets. the time you're at that level, there's no sharper flat singing. It's not like that. Every it has to be perfect. Yes, it has, wow. and not only does it have to be perfect. Well, you know, I shouldn't say that. There's always room for anomalies. It's like. And, and and you never really know what the adjudicating panel is thinking. They're certainly they're looking for stars. So it's like if if someone has an inordinately large instrument or an inordinately high instrument, there's a little more wiggle room for their technique to be because the the voice is so freakishly valuable that if their technique is a little bit less solid they'll be like okay especially with big voices because they don't expect big voices big meaning like Wagnerian size voices if you're a lyric voice like me like I was and I was 26 I don't understand the difference a lyric voice lyric, versus it, it, how do you explain well, it's, that it's 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 size it's amplitude it's how loud you project with minimal effort so I could I could sing um I mean, the size of an instrument is just a very basic thing. It's it's like how loud it is. But you have to be able to sustain with ease a certain volume in order to, um, in order to be heard right. <laughs> in, in, over an orchestra with an enormous brass section. Gotcha. So that said... Which is a, cra- which is a crazy <laughs> dynamic that I didn't even thought about. But yeah, having to project over... An orchestra. Yeah, so an opera size matters a lot. It just does, and 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 you can't teach that. It's, it's physiological. Just physiological, absolutely. And where you develop you sit, it. And where did you sit in that? Were you? Did you? Feel I like had you a were... very big voice for my genre, and that was something that made me stand out. You know, like I I was considered a light lyric voice, but it was a lot bigger than most of the light lyric voices that I was competing against, and that was something that excited. The, uh, the audience so I had a, I had an, an my voice was um, problematic in the sense that it wasn't it didn't fit really tidily into 
those categories that they create, which are frankly a convenience, I think, for casting directors and conductors, but they're like vocal archetypes. So a light lyric voice is, it should typify feminine beauty. Similarly, a lyric male voice should typify male masculine masculine beauty and youth. Um, So what's Pavarotti? He, well, he would have started as a, probably a lyric and then graduated into lyric spinto, which is a heavier, you know, richer, more heroic sound. And then eventually, I don't know if he ever graduated to, to dramatic tenor because he never sang Wagner, but he did sing Verdi. And those two have, in some instances, similar size orchestras. So you know, if, if you start out as a light lyric voice and go all the way through and graduate into heavier and heavier repertoires and then retire as a Wagner singer, you have literally, like, that's the dream, I guess. And in a way, like, when I, going full back to, like, when I set the bar so low for myself, like, I'll just be happy if I can make my living as a singer. The big dream is to sing for your entire life and then retire when you're, like, 70 after having sung Wagner. I, I mean, at least that's what for a lot of. Yeah, yeah. but it's funny because you're t- as you're t- talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, the technical and the subjectiveness, and there's there's all these different components. Stamina and longevity. Stamina, longevity, and yeah. and, and, and you know, they're they're in every industry though. That's the thing, and I think you know, opera world is so specific. And but you so could totally see how this analogy would apply to an actress. I mean, how many times? How many times does like you you meet a new ingenue and it's like everyone's excited, and then Hollywood chews her up and spits her out, and it's like there's no roles for you. Sorry, thousands and thousands. It happens in opera too. Yeah, and I I think that you know, like you said, it's a physiological thing too component, and you know, just like a beauty fade, so does a voice. Yeah, absolutely. And voices change. And there's a short attention span in the industry. The industry is contracting. Opera houses are not increasing the number of productions they're doing every year. Opera houses, starting in 2008, were closing their doors, and the bigger, better endowed ones with higher budgets were were you know cutting productions. And, um, you know, the, the industry's not generating as many stars. The recording industry is kind of trying to figure out what it's going to be doing. So there wasn't, and classical music anyway is such a small subset of the entertainment world. So, um, you know, what I, what I saw was sort of when I entered the business, there was this sense of expansiveness that was still lingering from the 90s with the dot-com boom and then you had like a lot of young rich board members at the San Francisco Opera and the Met and stuff and things were sort of shifting but then when the economy crashed like the kind of old old guard moved back in and you know the Met lost its funding from Texaco and it was just you know you a lot of singers realized they weren't going all of these singers that had been trained during the 90s realized that there was not going to be as much work as we thought and then they started to head to Europe again cuz cuz European markets would pay there was just more because it's subsidized it's subsidized oh there. yeah in Paris in yeah. Germany it's and and when you go and you work there you get full-time employment and benefits you don't get paid as much as you get paid here if you could piece together a career as a freelance artist at the highest level but you know, you can... 
Well, they sub- I remember uh, friends uh, when I was in New York left for Paris because if you can get residency and you, and you have to just show this, the government that you perform twice or three times a month or something, you get a subsidy as a musician. You oh, can wow. make they, you get paid. I never explored be, that. I just that went back crazy? to school. <laughs> I know. I just I, 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 no, no, I did. I went back to school. I did. And um, and I thought if I want to be an artist and I want to sing every day and I want to study, I need to go back to school. And I was lucky to get into the doctoral degree program I did in 2009. And where was that? In Stony Brook. So I, I re, yeah, I re-auditioned at Juilliard. I got past the first round, and they shot me down in my theory interview. Um, you know, where they were like trying to see if I really had the mind of a scholar, and were just like pinging me with crazy trivia. And I was like, it was an interview. Ba- this is to get into a, yeah. A and I say I or? sang really well at that audition, given that I had you know suffered a blow to my confidence you know, by, by sort of having things peter out on me a little bit in San Francisco. Um, but this is a pretty high level. I think we should make it clear. That's a pretty high, high I'm really level lucky. You're, you're I, I know I'm describing a, myself as like having had this like opera this, victim. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> here's the thing is the truth is that I got to sing, you know, two lead roles at the San Francisco opera. And that's huge. Like it, it, it that went way be and lots of and when was lots that? of that was between two thousand and two thousand and six. Be after after I was at Juilliard, I I was um, selected to be a a young artist in the Adler Fellowship at the San Francisco Opera. So they'll audition, you know, all over the world, and they'll select four singers maybe every year, and they use you, they train you. Mm-hmm. And and you continue your training, and they groom you to become a full fledged star, hopefully. Um, and then they use you in productions, but it's it's they don't always put they don't always put you into leading roles. They they use their discretion, and you know each administration is different. Like some of them trust the younger artists, some of them don't. Some of but. Um, it's I have no complaints. It's as good as it gets, and I you know I. I think that things unfolded the way that they were meant to. So I had, you know, kind of an intense, very brief career. <laughs> what, what is there one particular regret though? Just not enjoying it more. Being you know? impressed. Yeah. Cause you're not, so focused not on having more, literally not having more physical pleasure while singing. Like, Oh my God, this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. Do you have it now more than you did um, as, as a teacher and, just more involved in the community here? Singing is totally different for me now. It was like this tour de force experience that I needed to be able to become the storyteller that I am. There's nothing else. In other words, like if you are a storyteller, which is, I think, a certain archetype of human, you need to have a life worth talking about. And, you know, whether that, and that storytelling, you know, experience helps you create relationships with other people where you are engaged in a discursive evolutionary process. So I'm a lot more than an artist. It's just I chose that particular art form because it was so hard and it was so beautiful and it was so humbling and it was gave me incredible fodder for my imagination to try and understand where I belong 
in the world. Yeah, but it sounds like the intensity of the actual uh, tr- the the career of an opera singer trying to make it is is one that's like very little validation maybe at times. I found that even, not. I'm just oh, listening to your story, but just you know, I, I, I'll admit it, it's like as a musician and stuff. Ultimately, when you when you're creating something, we seek validation. We seek validation, and I think that what's amazing is how the accolades fall on deaf ears after a while, in the sense that I I never um, let the pleasure that I presumably gave to audiences restore my sense of energy and drive. It was like, it was all about... I didn't understand the f- the feedback loop. It was one-sided. Like I sang um, and I heard the applause, but it didn't restore my faith in myself. And I, it was just, when's the next gig? And how do I get the next gig? There was never a sense of how can I have this experience be so rewarding that it restores my energy that has been so tremendously depleted by the... Yeah, it doesn't sound like there was a lot of joy. No, it wasn't. It was very weird and sciencey and just like... And again, like no one, no one telling you, like, hey, you know, if you're not, if you, if you're not... And I use the word pleasure on purpose because it's, it has to be sensual pleasure to sing. It cannot be an out-of-body experience. And um, it, it, it's, you know, a sensual pleasure like getting a massage or right I mean for me I'm an I'm also you know quasi athlete so I get pleasure out of the burn you know after mile five when I'm running right so there I'm not I'm not trying to you know trivialize because it's work right yeah singing is work but there's that point where even when it's hard work there still has to be a sense of the feedback loop the endorphin feedback loop in your brain has to be restored and it for me it wasn't it was just constantly being depleted and then I had to show up the next day and figure out how to you know so all that beauty that attracted me to the to classical music I it's like I wasn't hearing it anymore Hmm. when I was singing um and I I mean I'm I I guess I'm maybe being a little bit of a drama queen because obviously there were times when I was a happy camper or I wouldn't have done it as long right. as I did. But, but really the, at those most, at those critical moments, I think where I had fought so hard and won that privilege to be there at that moment, that sense of joy that you're talking about was sadly absent. Yeah. There's, and I was just the intensity of that process of just trying to, to do it every single day. And we didn't even talk about how that affects, like when you're that focused on doing something and you're that in that training mindset of, you know, learning and in school, how you can't, you can't have relationships. Hmm. Those are hard. The relationship, all yeah. this, you've been, you're so focused, right? I mean, that side too, becomes, yeah, difficult. I know always, I, Juggling I, I, a social I, life I generally and, had a, had a boyfriend, but I, I found that, with all of my relationships, if they didn't feed directly the progress that I felt I should be making, that they then became extraneous. Yeah, well, how could you be open to someone else when you're giving that much energy to 
if they to, felt if I felt like they were helping me sing better. <laughs> well, you see, <laughs> hmm. No, and I mean I, that sounds horrible, but I wasn't the only one who thought like that. I mean, I no, would, I know. I would it's date just, other singers, and we would just talk about singing, and then we would just compare notes, and then you know encourage each other and be supportive and say like you know you sang like a badass today, and that's outstanding. And so there was that sense of camaraderie, but also you know that can get <laughs> complex <laughs> well yeah and then and then also um the i think that in in some ways i i don't know if i really paid enough attention to the personal development piece because i was just so focused on the artistic development and that and then it's like that's all i was so did i have relationship skills i don't know i don't even know what those are i don't really care you know like it never like those seemed so um trivial to me because if i could be a great artist nothing else mattered yeah it's you that. know and but really i was like i was not always a good girlfriend <laughs> you told me once were you married and then twice and but <laughs> but i wanted you remarried the same you divorced and then remarried the same guy yes is that true well he divorced that me that is amazing he divorced me both times and then you went and remarried him again that's amazing. Do you mind? Can we talk about that? Sure. Not? How did that happen? That's commitment. So when I do decide to do something, I really do it. You know, <laughs> like yeah. it was not. Um, I meant what I said the, the first time when I said I do. You have an. You're an intense person. When I first met yeah. you, I was like, man, she's. I think she hates me. <laughs> no, really. Yeah, you seemed intense. Like I was like, oh man, she. I'm, I'm like, sorry. and then I found out she was an opera singer. I'm like, oh, of course. That fits perfect. I I'm want a rock know, guy. You hate rock I guys. Want, no, I don't. I, I know. Lo- I I'm love. Just um, I <laughs> adore you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I don't. How did I give you that impression? I don't know. I think it was just. Did uh, I have like a hard look on my face? Yeah. Or something? I don't know. I must you, have been it worried was just about something. TCB taking you look like you're taking care of business all the time. But I mean, it was. I, I just listen. I, it wasn't bad. I just. I get it. I think if uh, it's interesting, I, um, you know, I, I, I lack self-awareness because I, I don't know that I look like I'm taking care of business. I think, I think maybe, um, I feel like, like pretty happy and pretty focused, but I do have a lot on my mind and maybe that, maybe that makes uh, it harder to make connections like in real time, but Anyway, well, you, well, I'll no. work on that. <laughs> no, listen. That was, <laughs> we put it on my list. <laughs> we all have lists. Well, we can uh, we can actually list. segue now into talking about your new job because I mm. think that uh, that's where I first ran into you. Talk was about here, here at the Nantucket oh, Community man. Center. The new my job is making lists. The executive director. <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah, it's really good. It's Congratulations. Amazing. Thank you. Um. Yeah, what a chance here, you know, to kind of bring all the lessons that I've learned full circle because um, it's not about elitism for me anymore. I mean, I want to create those opportunities for people who need that and certainly do do diligence in identifying the potential for that because it's critical. Um, at the same time to make it very clear that music belongs to everyone. And I really believe that, that we are biologically hardwired to make music and to enjoy it. And um, it doesn't take a certain 
um, you know, kind of oral eidetic talent in the ear. Um, everything can be developed and adapted that music is your birthright. And that, that one of the, th- I, and I really mean this when I say that if, if more people were making more music more often, we would have a lot fewer problems in our society. Hmm. I feel that way about meditation. Mm, well, yeah. I, I feel if, <laughs> but music is, is, could be connected to that. Meditation I mean, is a much harder sell than music, but they are connected. I think you, that certainly one can. We've, I've been meditating, s- trying to do it more often. And I realized that, you I know, I missed mine this morning, but I you? use music to meditate. Um, I'm, I'm more comfortable with silence now than ever. Cause it is its own kind of music. Isn't it? Yeah. I don't, I think music, it, I, I agree with what you're saying. I actually do think that music can, but I don't think everyone is on it. I don't want to say appreciates on our level, but I think it is. That has to be, that has to be developed. And when we use the word appreciate, I like, I like to remember that it's, it's kind of, it's become a flabby word, but actually it means to increase in value over time. So when you, you appreciate something, it's an active thing. You know, when we think, oh, I appreciate that, you, you sort of think like, I'm sitting back and coasting, appreciating something. No, it's not. It's like to appreciate, you know, when, 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 when an investment appreciates, it increases in value because there's someone participating, right? Or multiple entities participating. So, appreciation is something that happens through concerted effort and when the right information is introduced to the mind at the right time. So that's critical for people. That's the educational component. Absolutely. But in other words, it's like, why am I not getting as much pleasure out of this as I should? Well, I kind of answered my own question. I was like, I don't think I was listening enough. Well, you you know, I wasn't listening enough when I was freaking singing. I was not hearing the orchestra. I was not allowing that in. The fun. Well, this is what happens, I think, yeah. with, with conservatory training. And this is one of my criticisms, especially with classical, is people become so rigid. And what you just explained in the last 25 minutes of just of what you went through, that mindset, I think, in some aspects, and you can disagree or agree, it takes a little bit of the fun out of what music is, the essence of what it should be. It's just fun. Whatever I I can't ever remember the word fun being used, and I really mean this. Which is that's sad. That's really sad. In any conversation that I ever had with a teacher or a colleague or a coach for the entire fifteen years that I was unbelievable. There was never the word fun, and I want to say maybe. Maybe at one point a director might have said that they wanted to see more of a sense of play. But not fun. Never. <laughs> Never. And But that's some of the, I think, pitfalls within classically trained musicians is there's very little outside the box free fun kind of thinking, which to me as a I'm, I'm a hack musician, but rock and roll fits with what I do because it is fun. And every time I put play guitar, it's fun. And I, if I ever lose that component, then I'm like, I'm out because it's. I think I realized at one point on my own that I'd lost my sense of humor and that that was impacting the quality of my performances. And so that the, I, I, I did make that connection 
myself. And I think I had fun with my colleagues and we would, we would at times, you know, we'd have fun. We'd have like kind of covert jokes happening on stage and like, you know, seriously like goofy stuff happening behind the scenes where then you walk on stage and you're serious. But right. So there was that element there, but it, it certainly wasn't part of um, a philosophy for success, which I think you're correct. It should be. Yeah. And, you know, Can we have cool. a fun workshop? <laughs> we'll have a musically fun, fun workshop does. here. How to serious fun? Serious fun. Well, <laughs> I, I guess I, I always think about the classically trained versus the not classically trained, and, and you know, there's there's folk, there's jazz, even you know, jazz is guilty of this too. And I've experienced this on a couple levels playing with jazz guys. They sometimes can't. There's they're so locked into what chord progressions they're playing that they they lose the looseness and the fun mm. of just picking up an instrument and you know kind of throwing it together because they're they went to Juilliard and they're so jazz trained that it has to be done in this you know whatever mode you know key you're playing in it has to be so specific and it's I very rigid I guess is the word and you know I'm not sure that. that there's a, there's any way completely around that in um I don't know. I in guess classically I, trained well, settings? Or? No, I mean, I, I think that... I think that if you're not having fun, your audience isn't. Because I think the audience experiences in, in many, in largely a vicarious experience with you. I think there's a, a transference of energy that happens. Because everyone goes to hear music to imagine, not just for what it for what it sounds like but you can't help it you're sitting in the audience and you are you're watching and observing the artist and you're thinking what it would feel like to be able to do that yeah i mean with you there i think people come to see you and they want to see what you can do there's that too well they because because you have that component like for me people i feel like listen he's not a great singer he's not but he's entertaining you know, that's a, I don't have much well, to they want to be on. entertained too. I mean, they, I think, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm sure that people go to hear music for all different reasons. Um, not, and one not better than the other, certainly. And probably some, I mean, I often, I don't have, always have expectations. I go often as a sense, out of a sense of duty. Like I have to, um, make time in my life to, listen um but I find that the fewer expectations I have the more kind of uh, of an empty mind I have going in and the fewer expectations I have I that I tend to enjoy myself more so as a mature That's interesting you're evol- you're evolving oh, into it and then I, I I I I seldom find that I am not enjoying myself in a musical performance even when their student performances are I guess because I appreciate the whole process so much that I'm looking at it at a completely different level. Like I'm looking at where is this person at in their development as a human being? Yeah. And how can I sit in the audience and energetically interact with them in a way that's advantageous to evolution? I know that sounds geeky, but it's like that's how I think about it. Like I don't. That's pretty heady way to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, because I know that how I feel and think in an audience affects, as an audience member, affects the performer. Have you yeah, ever had a dead? Exact. Have you ever had a dead audience? It's uh, the worst. Yeah, story of my life. <laughs> no, I, I, I literally had to, on two occasions someone snoring very loudly 
while I was singing at matinees (laughs) at the opera. (laughs) No, it was actually awesome. A loud snore? Maybe that was like a one rare moment that I had fun. You heard him snoring. Oh, yeah. It was so loud. Did it it make you want to sing louder? No, there wasn't really time to make a judgment call like that. It was just like, I just kept singing, but I kind of couldn't believe it. And then, you know, it was definitely like a matinee mimosa situation. And it was, it was a big, huge, old Dude. uvula, you know, just drag. Uh, and sleep then, at me, a guy like <laughs> totally, totally waking himself his up wife, from snores. And of course, the next thing that happened was his wife elbowed him. But wow. You could give a glance. That's I the think, beauty about you know live what I theater. Think I remember, I remember writing about it. <laughs> And later, and rationalizing it, saying, clearly that person was really tired and needed to relax. And I'm so glad that I was able to provide him with the restful. <laughs> and which is crazy because you don't think an opera is going to put you to sleep, especially with the crazy. Three hours into Butterfly? Yeah. No, actually, I think Butterfly. Three hours is well, so Butterfly long. is only two and a half hours long, but that was right at the end. Singing for three hours? Well, you don't. You know, I know you have. She's on stage virtually the entire opera, which is why one of the reasons Madame Butterfly is such a difficult role. So, yes, you do have to have that kind of endurance. I mean, moment to moment, what's the most... Like, I think Susanna in Le Nozze di Figaro, she has... I want to say she's on stage for three quarters of the opera. I couldn't sound that eloquent saying that. Let alone <laughs> The marriage of Figaro. What the hell are you talking about? So, on stage time... See, this is the, this is the snobbery, the opera... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm kidding. It's okay. I'm trying to keep it fun. Oh, well, I'm and I'm doing my best to completely doing- squelch <laughs> your fun. I hope you folks aren't crying at home. <laughs> Are you weeping listening to oratorio? I was just going to put up the, the number one. So wait a minute. Let me tell you, snoratorio. That's Snor- one of the jokes. There you go. We call it snoratorio. Dietrich Fischer. Discow. Discow. He's wonderful. Baritone. He's the number one. Really? Yep. That's interesting. Yeah, he is. Well, he's saying everything. Oh. And here he is. Do you know what he's saying? Tom, I, I... Is this... I, I'm so embarrassed. I don't know what this opera is. It's a baritone. Yeah, I know, but I want to know. A, oh, no, it's a baritone. No, he's a baritone. He's a baritone, but what is <laughs> no, he singing No, it's a baritone. There? I don't know. A guy's singing up there. His name is Dietrich. What is he singing? Um, It's something about wine. I think it's it's a Mozart. How many languages do you sing in? Well, um, regularly, four, but... I, I did do an opera in Czech too. It's amazing. <gasps> oh my God, we're running out of time. You have a, you have an appointment. No, it's, uh, that. Oh, I do. I have. So we're gonna have to wrap it up. Yeah. But I just Aww. want I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to come on Inside the Whale and talk about your experience because it is fascinating <laughs> and I and I hope <laughs> people listening have a deeper appreciation for what uh, uh, an opera singer goes through. I hope I wasn't too much of a wet blanket about it. No, I'm sure there's people snoring, but (laughs) no, I think I I just. But it it is that difficult. It is, and and that's really you know I think that I I really respect the amount of training and time that goes into it. I can't wait to uh, come down here. You sing at the the music center. Yeah, I um, it is. I'm. I'm going to remain open to the idea that I will have time. 
but I'm with the new position you might not yeah. have time. Well, and also just frankly, you know, like I'm I'm looking to keep growing and I don't know you know, as much as I love that music, I think I want to explore other ways of of singing and making music. So I'm I'm looking at You wanna come sing with Lance Mountain? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's done. I just want that to take us out. It's very nice. Greta Feeney. You're you're a true gem of Nantucket. Oh. Thanks for sitting down. The pleasure was all mine. There it is. Greta Feeney. What a treasure this island has. You know what's funny? It's, it's amazing to me just how many talented people are out here. It's inspiring. What a uh, what an, an amazing and accomplished person. Juilliard trained professional opera singer here on the island. She performs. I, uh, I have not seen her perform, but uh, next time she uh, does sing, I know I will be there to check it out. It's, it's an amazing craft an opera singer and uh it was really special to have her sit down and talk about the uh, insular world of opera singing uh very informative and uh hopefully uh maybe you guys found it inspiring i sure did thanks again greta for sitting down and uh that's it folks episode 27 in the books february we're almost through it folks got a great episode coming up for you i think uh, i think what we'll do to take us out let's listen to greta sing let's uh Let's give her a listen here. Let's hear her pipes roar. Thanks again, Greta. We'll see you on episode 28 is coming up with John Shea. As always, thanks for the click, guys. We'll see you next time.